0: The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. CIUT 89.5 Toronto.
1: Good morning, I'm Alison Smith. And I'm Bass Bednar. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are currently the only people on the campus of University of Toronto right now, it feels like. Happy Easter. Or
2: a dystopic zombie future. As always, we're live in studio here at the University
1: of Toronto, and here's what we're detangling together this morning. Last week, the Roseanne reboot premiered to the highest ratings for any network sitcom in almost four years. We will speak to a man that cried and did his taxes while watching the show, (laughs) freelance culture writer John Sembley. And we will detangle the range of reactions the, the resurrected show received. I hear there may be a reboot of The Nanny. I
2: saw that on the internet. Maybe that was April Fool's. I don't know, but I got (laughs) excited. Um, After that, we're going to do a Toronto politics retrospective on PC leader Doug Ford with the Toronto Star City Hall reporter Jennifer Pagliaro. You know her as JPAGS online. If Ford will seek to leverage his political experience as a city councillor with his newfound provincial platform, what can we learn from his track record about how he might govern the province as a potential premier stay tuned
1: we'll find out and what is the most glorious or garish eyeshadow you've ever worn we are going to talk about the history and culture of blue eyeshadow with chicago-based freelance writer ray nudson sounds good a bit about the show if you're just tuning in i don't really wear eyeshadow but
2: i do want to talk about that as well um what ever about eyeliner um, I'm really bad at it. I was going to bring at Christmas. I got one of the Rihanna eye oh, shadow Fenty. sets. We should have put <laughs> some on for this the show. Um, every week we make the complex colloquial, including blue eyeshadow. You can follow our show on Twitter at DetangledCIUT. And you can also subscribe on iTunes to a podcast version of this live broadcast. A little bit of both worlds there. All yes. right. Let's detangle it. we are joined on the line by john semley john is a freelance writer based in toronto and his writing has appeared in a bunch of places he regularly contributes to film and book reviews in the globe and mail and he's usually on cbc radio q on monday mornings but this week he's with us because of the holiday that rocks good morning john
1: oh all right we do not have John on the line yet, but we will remind you, listeners, that what we're going to talk about is the reboot of Roseanne, uh, which which started last week. I watched two episodes of it over the weekend. It's a uh, they're redoing the the 1990s show, and it has uh, gotten a lot of a lot of viewership, a lot of uh, articles written about it, and a lot of talk about Roseanne Barr, uh, the star and producer of the show's um, kind of political leanings, which are very pro-Trump, uh, slightly controversial, and even weed into the uh, kind of right-wing conspiracy world. And she, and she tweets about all that. So, you know, people are a little bit up in the air about whether or not they should be supporting this show, uh, whether or not they should be watching it, while Roseanne Barr as a person has become such a controversial figure. I think we do have John on the line now. Hi, John. Hello. Hello. Welcome.
3: Good to be here. Happy Easter Monday to everyone. Hey. Happy Easter and Monday. You were well. you
2: Were you on an Easter egg hunt this morning?
3: Uh, I was not. No, I just got out of bed about uh, seven minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Lucky. <laughs> uh, first off, can you give us your impression of the first two episodes of the Roseanne reboot?
3: Has there uh, only sure, been two yeah.
1: episodes? Am I right so about I that? Had-
3: The the third one airs tomorrow night, I believe So yeah, there have been two thus far Um, My impressions are That I really like it I think that it's very funny Uh, And I also think it might be like Sort of morally good And righteous in a way that like Very few things are Which may sound inflated But uh, I can back it up
1: (laughs) Every good hot take Is like a little bit inflated (laughs) Yeah, yeah (laughs) So, are you? You said that the show you think it's morally good. Can you kind of talk about maybe some of the elements, the characters, the plot lines that that make you think that?
3: Sure. Well, I think uh, so. The big one, I guess, is that Roseanne and Dan uh, have a grandson who's kind of uh, gender queer or gender gender fluid. Uh, they have um, another mixed race granddaughter by DJ and his wife who's serving in Syria, I believe. Um, And there's all these kind of issues. I mean, it's the sort of stuff where if you were a liberal or progressive, you wouldn't bat an eye on it. But the thing about Roseanne is that it's not for liberals or progressives. So when I read stories about how, like, after the premiere last week, you know, that conservatives are around the water cooler talking about issues like this, it really sort of buoys my spirit. I mean, I think this is the thing that people have been talking about at least since the election is. How do we get past these sort of hermetic bubbles that we live in uh, and sort of start seeing the world in a different way? And I think that Roseanne offers a way to do that for certain people.
1: Do you think as a liberal or progressive, by watching a show about Trump supporters, it's kind of going both ways?
3: Uh, how do you mean going both ways? Of trying to well,
1: have a... I- it- I guess you're arguing that there's like kind of these woke elements that maybe conservative viewers would be watching, but if you know you're a liberal person or Democrat or whatever East, uh, what do they call like coastal city person? Um, right, coastal elite. Coastal elite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and you're and you're watching a show about Trump supporters and sort of seeing empathy for like working class middle America people. Maybe maybe that that works that way
3: too. Yeah, no, I think that is possible. I mean. Uh like i say it would be it seems a bit crazy to be like oh now people can finally have empathy for their fellow man (laughs) roseanne or something like that um but you know in fact what i'm seeing in response to it is like i'm not seeing a lot of that i'm seeing a lot of people saying that the show is sort of disingenuous uh that it's not actually depicting what trump supporters are actually like uh and i don't know i'm like i'm a little bit disbelieving when i read those takes
2: well, so much popular television uh, is often about escapism, exploring you know other kind of situations and contexts. But this show seems to be much more of like an accurate portrayal of some subset of America that we're either unfamiliar with or so uncomfortable with that it's you know people are are reacting to seeing this kind of mirror on the screen. Do you see this as kind of a cultural moment for more authentic? television in terms of the stories that we're we're telling ourselves and each other
3: I mean I'm not sure about authenticity at the end of the day like this is like a very sort of classic almost in this age like outmoded three camera sitcom with a laugh track and all this uh so I mean it's sitcom-y and it has that sort of sitcom feel Mm -hmm. um and in that sense I guess you know it's true to the original series uh but I think that there's something to be said about having nuanced conversations like that in the context of a sitcom i mean you look at what happened with you know what i might call like the working class sitcom after roseanne and you got junk like you know home improvement or grace under fire which were totally vacuous i mean roseanne has like always talked about issues in this way Mm -hmm. and has always been i mean i don't want to say woke necessarily because i think that term has a negative connotation uh but has dealt with issues that affect you know everyday people, real people. I mean, that sounds condescending at my part, but it means issues that affect all people.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, in the review that Roxanne Gay wrote for the New York Times, she said that it feels like the show is kind of going through a checklist of of modern-day America problems. Um, like, they're, they're lo- they talk about lots of problems with being able to get enough money for their for their health care. Um, the gender-neuroconforming child, the and war is actually part of it the, uh, one of the the children is uh, in Syria as you said and someone I think another child just got back um, and then they also talk about how Roseanne's an uber driver which I thought was funny um, <laughs> did you get the vibe that they're just trying to not maybe just trying to but are going through a checklist of, of these sort of cultural or uh, socioeconomic issues
3: well, to that, I would say, so what? I mean, like, so what if we're going through a checklist of mm. contemporary issues and talking about them? I mean, I don't see that as being uh, an insult or a fault of the show. I mean, this show in its original run was always sort of issue-driven in this way. You know, you had episodes about Becky running away, getting married, about Jackie getting beaten up by a boyfriend, you know? Like, there has always been sort of big issues at the heart of Roseanne. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the fact that it's sort of Ripping stuff from today's headlines I mean, that's the point of it That was always the promise of this show
2: Yeah Well, part of the promise of Roseanne Is Roseanne herself And much of the the criticism around the show Seems to be centered around Roseanne Barr's real-life persona Which includes being a Trump supporter That's totally fine And spreading maybe, you know, right wing conspiracy theories on, on Twitter. How does this drive with with her character? Does it make watching the show is that what makes watching the show problematic for some people that they're not separating, you know, her as a as a person and an artist from this character that she's also portraying online? Like why why can we not kind of buy into that divorcing?
3: Well I mean this is the point where I think the show does become a bit uh Mm -hmm. which is that, uh, you know, the Roseanne on the show is a softer, gentler version of the Roseanne in real life, as we know her, I guess, from her Twitter account. Uh, But that said, I saw Roseanne give a talk in Toronto a few years ago about Hollywood child sex rings, Mm -hmm. and she was just, like, totally out there. Like, I mean, I'm trying to be sympathetic, but, I mean, she seems not quite... All there. Um, and I'm not saying that to excuse her either. I mean, she's a, yeah, like a rabid Trump supporter, a rabid Zionist. You know, there's plenty of things that people dislike about Roseanne. Um, so I don't know. Is she trying to soften her own image on the show? I don't know. And at the end of the day, I guess I don't really care because 20 million people are watching this show and it's, you know, at the risk of generalizing the kinds of people who aren't reading Roseanne's Twitter feed. So I think the net positive yeah. uh, still sort of outweighs it.
1: I saw a very funny tweet video, Twitter video that she posted, I guess like maybe like four or five years ago that people resurfaced this week and it's her on some sort of vacation and she's just screaming at these two parrots, Bush did 9-11, Bush did 9-11. And I don't know why, but it was very funny.
3: Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's, she's fully in the bag of like a lot of those ideas, you know, but people talk about separate the art from the artist and all this and like at the end of the day, I get very annoyed when I read this because the people who tend to beat that drum are always the ones who are never willing to do the work of separating the art from the artist. So why do they even pretend to care about art in the first place? I mean, if you don't think that like art or culture or even entertainment like a sitcom can sort of advance ideas and reconcile political and social tensions in a way that politics itself can't even do, then you shouldn't profess care about art because that is its entire sort of high level function Uh, and I think that that is the thing that people should think about when they're talking about separating the art from the artist. It's not just whether or not you like a thing or a personality.
1: Mm -hmm. So you're saying there's more value to this show than dancing to R. Kelly at a wedding?
3: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in this show, you know, and it's it's like, uh, and also I think it's like, it's affecting, like I watched those two episodes twice and it was like sobbing through it you know yeah. we did uh, say that
2: you cried and did your taxes before i
3: was i was uh, i was sobbing because i was doing my taxes <laughs> uh but yeah i mean I, I think that there is potential here i like, you know I, i'm not sitting here on my couch like as some condescending snob being like oh well like roseanne will fix you know the american <laughs> midwestern heart or something like that yeah. but i just think it's like it's a good solid affecting TV that's about issues and talks about them in ways that real people talk about them mm-hmm. and lands on the right side of them. I mean, if you were to have a sitcom like this for like progressives, the issue of having a gender nonconforming grandson would like never be talked about. Like, yeah, there'd be the character, but it would be verboten that anyone might have an issue with it, you know? Yeah. But here we have people who do have issues with it and who talk about it and it would end up coming towards like nice conclusions at the end which I think is
1: good although I'd argue that the the black daughter granddaughter kind of did the opposite of the gender non-conforming um, child thing because they didn't talk about her at all to the point that I was very confused about two who two the character is I suppose
3: they yeah used... I mean I, I agree but the other thing is like as I understand it, she is the daughter of of DJ and then DJ's wife who's still serving overseas. And I mean, if you watch the original series, like DJ himself was always like a nothing character. Like Darlene and Becky were always like the Mm -hmm. developed kids and then DJ was just there for like sort of easy laughs about him being weird. So it might just be a thing about trying to figure out how to write for this whole sort of subset of the family. I mean, Darlene's kids get like a lot of play in it, which I guess is predictable because it's just sort of replicating the dynamics of the original.
2: Yeah, Um, I saw a lot of quizzes online. Allison was mentioning a video she watched. John, let me tell you what I've been up to on the internet, which is things where it's just like, whoa, like which characters from Friends or Seinfeld might have voted Republican and like using these quizzes as like some kind of strange vector to, you know, as a gateway for people to have conversations about different people with different political views or is it supposed to like fundamentally alter your appreciation for – a fictional character from the 90s like really
3: um i I mean i think it's the latter i think that stuff like only ever makes people be like oh i can't watch uh seinfeld now because (laughs) kramer would have voted for bernie sanders or something but uh, i mean would kramer voted for bernie sanders i don't know um but yeah i don't know i i think that's that's like again People talk about bubbles, and the bubbles are a big problem, and the way in which people seek to only find news and only find culture that benefits uh, and services their existing worldview, I mean, that is a big problem on basically every side of the political aisle. So sort of BuzzFeed quizzes like this, I think, only service that problem instead of helping to relieve it.
2: Yeah, thanks, BuzzFeed.
1: (laughs) So do you think that there's a space for, I mean, in Canada, we don't really have the coastal city Uh, situation, although sort of, I guess, depending... Lake Ontario,
3: Ontario, Lake Ontario I consider
1: a coast. It's true, the Sea of Toronto, (laughs) uh, as we've called it on the show before. Um, (laughs) Do you think that there's space for a show in Canada that that tries to do this sort of work, despite the fact we have, like, no shows in Canada, but maybe this is the one we should have?
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, Little Mosque on the Prairie tried to do... I mean, it was a bit of a different thing, where it's, like you know, modeling a sort of microcosmic progressive community in the hopes that it would sort of expand across the entire nation. Um, I don't know. Like I think corner gas is a show that's like maybe not Mm -hmm. quite conservative art, but certainly kind of parochial and folksy and speaks to like, if there's such thing as a middle Canadian heart, uh, then something like that. Uh, The red green
1: show that kind of did that.
3: Yeah, the Red Green show kind of did that. I mean, even I would say Trailer Park Boys. Like, Trailer Park Boys is a show about Mm -hmm. people who are socially and economically marginalized, but that show has, like, a ton of heart, you know? Like, I wouldn't go so far as to call it, like, a progressive text or anything like that. Uh, But I think that, again, it sort of lands on the right side of issues more often than not. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think there's space for it. Like, I guess you do worry with the success of Road Band that now we're going to get like a wave of hyper didactic sitcoms where everyone's just like a caricature of a different political belief. Mm-hmm. So I, I would kind of dread that. But you know, I think that as far as again the humor and the issues and what's being talked about, like I think a show like this can really get people to think about it. And again, like these so are people who don't watch the daily show or like Colbert or whatever, you know, they don't yeah. like think about politics in that way.
2: Yeah. I also think it's, I mean, it is, it was fascinating for me to read that, you know, ABC was revising their strategy post-Trump and, you know, maybe this is a narrative that they're only presenting now or, you know, in hindsight, but, you know, actually thinking about audiences that may be underserved by what they're offering and how they can better target to them is still a fundamentally like good thing. It's a, it's an important thing for broadcasters to be thinking of and uh, I guess connecting to politically so I have an appreciation for that i we the last thing we wanted to ask you is about um what happened to Jerry Roseanne's son, but we were reading about it so we kind of know <laughs> that the kind of like one missing character link where years ago it turns out she was pregnant on the show for like over a year because she right. s- she started fake pregnant and then was real pregnant, so they just like kept it going. <laughs> Um, were you looking? Were you looking out for Jerry, her son, when you were watching those first two episodes, or too engrossed in uh, TurboTax? Uh,
3: uh, first of all, I don't use TurboTax, and would not want to sponsor <laughs> them on air. Uh, but yeah Jerry, Jerry Garcia Connor, the uh, the, the missing Roseanne child I don't know if he'll come back I mean they're doing a lot of fun things like they have both Beckys on it uh, which is something that <laughs> Rosie fans like myself were clamoring for <laughs> uh, but I don't know there's a there's a lot there's like eight episodes left of an 11th season so who knows I mean uh, it, again it would kind of be a shame if it just becomes this sort of sticky like oh look who walked into the door with. Uh, a laugh track but then that's the kind of show it is so
1: uh,
3: maybe it would be fun.
1: Well thank you so much for your insights John.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Right. Uh, Listeners you can follow John on Twitter at JohnSemley3000 for all your uh, Jordan Peterson commentary is also available (laughs) there. (laughs) And also watch Roseanne tomorrow night. Yeah do it. Um, after the break, we're going to
2: speak with Toronto Star City Hall reporter Jennifer Pagliaro about the time she spent reporting on Doug Ford while at City Hall. While well, he was at City Hall, she's still there. Uh, Ford wants to be the premier of Ontario, so now's the time to remember what it was like when he was a city councillor.
1: Here is September Fades by Ralph. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 895 FM. <laughs>
0: an afterthought, I can hear the silent sound on the phone, when you say the words, and I say none, taking it all, cause it feels way too good to say no, let you go, in your hands in the dark where you lead, oh, I will follow, evergreen.
1: Welcome back. I'm Alison Smith. And I'm Vas Bednar. That was September Fades by Ralph. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT
2: 89.5 FM. We are joined on the line by Toronto Star City Hall reporter Jennifer Pagliaro. She's written extensively on transit politics, public housing, and development issues. She was named one of Canada's best young journalists in 2013. And as far as we're concerned, that still holds five years <laughs> later. She's great. How's it going?
4: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. Hey, you. good morning. Listeners, I'm going to do a little bit of a disclaimer before we dig into this segment. Uh, we are going to be using a swear word <laughs> that is in relation to words that Ford said while he was an elected public official. The, so if uh, we have at the station have decided that it's okay to use this word, it is the B word. Uh, so we will be using it in that context. But if you have children around and don't want them to hear that word, you may want to turn the dial for a few minutes. Anyways, yes. hi, Jennifer.
2: Hey. <laughs> so- so oh. Go ahead. Thanks. Also, when you hit the table for emphasis, I love it, but it echoes on to, you know, Um, you you covered City Hall when Rob Ford was mayor and when Doug Ford was a city councillor and then also running for mayor in Rob's place. Um, Just kind of off the top, what do you think Ontario voters need to know about Doug based on his tenure at City Hall ahead of June's, you know, fast approaching provincial election?
4: Yeah, I think uh, what's most important about Doug Ford's time at City Hall is it's really um, the second most important uh, career he's had Mm -hmm. in his life. He helps run his family business, uh, and he's been doing that for a really long time, Uh, and it's a business that exists both in Etobicoke and in Chicago. Um, But obviously, I think his City Hall experience plays more heavily, uh, should play more heavily on voters' minds going into a provincial election. This is his only political experience, Mm -hmm. and I think we can take a lot from what happened at City Hall. He was uh, a city councillor for Etobicoke North, but of course he is Rob Ford's brother and was his right-hand man at City Hall during that administration.
2: But do you think, I mean, before I turn it to Alison, do you think he'll seek to minimize that political experience and instead amplify and leverage his business experience because he kind of takes that, um, you know, efficiency approach to, to governing in terms of, you know, cutting the waste, looking for gravy and whatever his, that business training is like six Sigma lean something. You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: I've seen him reference both so far. And um, Allison actually made a really good point in a podcast we were on the other day, which is that he's sort of spoken quite uh, vaguely about his record so far. Um, He speaks in these sort of superlative statements where, you know, he talks about the money that he saved at City Hall. Mm -hmm. um, And and he and and his brother, when he was alive, both uh, frequently lied or exaggerated about the extent to which they save taxpayers' money. And so we've seen a lot of that already as he challenges Kathleen Wynne. And I think uh, he will continue to do so throughout the campaign.
1: Yeah, I guess just to be specific, he says that he saved the city a billion dollars, right? That's his thats his sort of line, um, which has been repeatedly disproven by journalists and, and public officials alike.
4: Yeah, that's right. It's something he repeated. It's, it's a pretty complicated lie because city officials actually propped it up for a pretty long time. Uh, and he was able to actually, both he and Rob were able to point to statements that city officials had made um, when he was being challenged by journalists, which made it tough for us to challenge them. But uh, if you kind of break it down line by line, which is something uh, my colleagues and other uh, outlets have done, you know the biggest thing is, you know, for example, they didn't include in that that under the Ford administration they actually brought in a new tax levy to pay for a Scarborough subway extension, which needs to bring in about a billion dollars of city tax base funding, which comes Mm -hmm. off of the property tax bill of every single homeowner. So if you just start there, it sort of cancels out what they're saying about a billion dollar claim. But even if you go deeper into that claim, you know, they they are saying, for example, that money they pulled out of a reserve fund to cover the budget was actually a saving. Uh, and I don't know if most accountants or most people just using common sense would necessarily think that you can totally count something like that as a saving, and there's a lot of that in that claim
1: and one of the other kind of big boasts that comes out of um about of doug's mouth uh maybe not so much since he's been running, but it's something that the Fords anyways talk about a lot is the the privatization of garbage pickup right and in, in half the city was something they're like very proud of that they brought in during uh their their time at City Hall. What would you say? Like, Was that a successful implementation of this private system? Has it been working the way people want? Is the company that's running it going well? What's your take on that?
4: That was a bit of a mixed bag. I think you can definitely say that there were some benefits to that. We've seen the garbage pickup on the other side of Young Street. That's kind of how it's divided. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, unionized city workers have actually... Um, become more efficient workers as a result of having half the service uh, contracted out. And so, you know, you could argue that it's it's improved things overall, the sort of like private public split. Um, certainly the unions would disagree with that. But, um, you know, at the same time, there were, you know, not a lot of successful policy initiatives that the Ford pushed through. So, yes, that was something that they could claim that they did. They did they did set out to do that, and they did accomplish it. You could argue about the overall merits of, of that, and I think people on either side of the political spectrum don't agree on privatization, but that's certainly something that they accomplished.
1: And are there any other big issues that you think of, like when you think back at, at what Doug Ford did there, like what what was it? What are, what are we forgetting, I guess, maybe as voters or as reporters or just, you know, as the as the general public, it seems like, you know, four years or so have passed. And that like doesn't seem like a long time, but it is when we're not seeing uh, nonstop coverage of the Fords like we used to. I think that the narrative has has shifted depending on who you ask about whether or not, you know, Doug Ford did a good job.
4: Yeah, there, there's a few things that I think we're forgetting that stick out to me. Um, something that uh, troubled me and clearly troubled um, a city watchdog was that Ford actually, uh, this is Doug Ford, used his influence to uh, try to help his business clients, the the Deco labels and tags, yeah. the family business he owns, at City Hall. Um, and she found that he improperly used that influence. Um, actually, several lobbyists were also investigated and you know that obviously uh, is something that is troubling that he didn't see um the watchdog found really a line there that these people were meeting with him and then he was trying to have city staff essentially help them with a contract that they were looking to potentially bid on um and that's obviously an issue Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Uh, and that that was investigated over several years and she did write a report about that and there were several stories that uh, the city hall press gallery wrote um, and that's all available online as part of the public record. Um, I think we also forget that when the Fords were crafting their budgets, um, they did something similar to what Doug is claiming now, about being able to find the waste, this idea of a gravy train. And, you know, one of the uh, budgets they were planning for 2012, this is partly through their administration, they ordered city um, departments to all enforce a 10% Budget right. cut just across the board. And this yeah. is the famous debate where uh, library services were going to be cut, mm-hmm. and there's this all night debate. I think that kind of sticks out to people. Um, there are people crying and deputing about the library. And in the end, they were forced mm-hmm. to back down on that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because there wasn't that much, you know, quote unquote waste at City Hall. You know, most city managers I have spoken to have said there's always room for improvement. But lately, you know, city managers have been saying that we really just don't have enough money to pay for these kinds of services. And that was something that I think the boards really failed at. Mm-hmm. They were really good at the talking point about the gravy trains. But when it came down to the actual budgeting, yeah. uh, they were just trying to slash services to meet uh, a somewhat arbitrary target that they themselves had set.
2: Yeah, they seem to have a bit of a, a rough relationship with the facts as well. And provincially, from the Liberals, we have this narrative of the facts still matter. Um, And also, you know, Doug making this fascinating transition from City Hall, where you're, you know, quote, unquote, independent, uh, to a system where, you know, there'll be a little bit more, you know, I, I think party discipline, and people may need to support his lack of facts or his kind of directions kind of speaking off the cuff. And that's going to be new and that's going to be different and potentially amplify or kind of
1: dampen what he's saying. But I think it's interesting just what you said about the arbitrary number Yeah, is that he's doing that exact same thing right now. And he's saying that he's going to save four cents on every dollar in the provincial budget or something like that. And it's again, it's just something that he seems to have just pulled from from thin air as like this is what we need to do. I mean, I guess it was was it to compensate for the carbon tax? I'm not really sure exactly exactly but um come on the every family
2: saving the uh you know e- including children like his oh, the, accounting uh, as if children were like also paying in income taxes, taxes yeah. and like making over a right. hundred grand like it's basically yeah ba- I mean that's a good point too Allison I guess I'm kind of asking you Jennifer as you anticipate seeing more reporting like are we going to have you know way more fact checking are we gonna have these daily kind of fact checks you know can we take anything? he says or claims at face value and like do you think he'll be someone who listens to advice because in theory someone or some subset of people with more expertise are going to be providing some more kind of quantitative numeric analysis from a budget perspective and it's like what is he going to do with that um There have been lots of comparisons to Tim Hudak and the numbers, you know, Tim had been using four years ago, but those were underpinned and, you know, he had, he published research that showed how he got those numbers and that was disputed, but he was very transparent and just shout out to Tim Hudak there because I don't think he ever got as much, um, I don't think he got the accolades for that. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just rambling. I'm going back to you, Jennifer.
4: I think, you know, on the fact check I was super encouraged to see um that one that you mentioned about, you know, if you actually do math you would have to include like every child in the household and, and that kind of fact check yeah. is so important because those are the kinds of statements that are very Fordian. They're mm,
2: um, Fordian, I like that.
4: Yeah, they don't um they have no like basis in actual <laughs> math and they're sort of they're really good talking points mm-hmm. and um they're it seems as though you know with at least a certain segment of voters they're really effective but I think those kinds of fact checks are so crucial Um they're really hard to do on the fly and I'm encouraged that um, even if it's going back a little bit after the interview is over or um, you know another outlet doing it later I think it's really important to do that so that people have you know the correct information or can um, you know, have the the analysis to sort of challenge him. Mm-hmm. Well, and it but, also
1: means that the yeah. other reporters won't just reiterate any longer. They're not going to use Doug Ford's number that he presented, right? Not That's to say that one hundred percent of them would, but some might have. Or, you know, Doug Ford said this. We know if it's like very specifically disproven in the moment or close to that number is not going to get repeated because you'd look a fool if you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I mean, that was the problem with the billion-dollar lie, is that it took a while for it to be properly fact-checked, and and that was on us, I think, as the press gallery. But, you know, once it was fact-checked, I think there's um, sort of a wider knowledge that when he says that, there's sort of this, like, memory in people's heads, like, I don't think that was quite true. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite that high. And, you know, if you Google it now, you will see all of the fact checks. And I think that's important to also have on the record.
1: So we, off the top of the segment, used a disclaimer that we were going to use the the B word. So let's do it. Can you tell our listeners about when Doug Ford called you a bitch in front of a bunch of people?
4: So this was at the tail end of the 2014 municipal election. Uh, Rob had been running for mayor and then was uh, diagnosed with cancer, he got very ill and so Doug essentially switched places with him and then challenged Tory himself to run as mayor and they were debating at uh, televised uh, studio debates, and afterwards reporters got to sort of uh, pile into the studio and ask questions and this was at a time when uh, Doug had promised to release his campaign donations list as most top mayoral candidates often do before the actual vote uh, he hadn't done that yet, and there are a few other outstanding things that I really wanted to speak to him about, and it just ended up that, you know, I just kept asking questions of him, like, in a row, like, one after the other, and he became quite agitated with me. We sort of had this uh, antagonistic back and forth, and then as he walked away, uh, a photographer for the Star that was with me and um, a producer at the studio and a few other people heard him say that, uh, I can't stand that little bitch. And I was sort of, you know, like taken aback at the time. N- not so much because I was necessarily offended, which I mean, I obviously was, but that he would say something like that, you know, about a reporter in a room full of reporters right before an election.
1: Yeah. Um,
4: and you know, it obviously became a news story, which is an uncomfortable thing for a news reporter. Mm. Um, the thing that I would say about it is that the other thing that I think is important to remember about the Fords is—they often get quoted as you know not being politically correct, but they've you know you know Doug particularly has attacked female journalists uh, on a number of occasions. Um, he once attacked like the family of an autistic boy,
5: mm-hmm. you know,
4: about an autistic um, group home in his ward. He said like he knew that they were autistic, but he didn't think they would be going outside. Um, and I think those things really shocked and challenged people at the time and. Those haven't necessarily been referenced again in this election, but that's also part of Doug's record.
2: Well, there are those, and I know Allison had a kind of jarring experience with uh, Doug post, post-provincial post budget last week, so I'll let you get to that, Allison. But there are these websites, you know, instead of going to a website promoting a potential candidate, there's the notdoug.com, notwin.com. It's interesting to see the kind of digital push that's more against a candidate this seems a little bit more novel and a little newer to me at least in an electoral context than before you know fine the meme wars have always been there but this is this is a little bit different and that's where i've seen those sorts of instances that you've been bringing up kind of amplified or people kind of putting it on on twitter threads but in terms of attitudes towards women that you we need to wrap do you want to say okay
1: okay it's okay. We'll talk about it some other time. <laughs> we could talk to you forever.
2: This was <laughs> so fun. Yeah, and thanks, Jennifer. We're so glad you're hot on the case. And thanks for having me. Have and a keep great day.
1: fact-checking Doug Ford. Yeah. Uh, the Queen's Park Press Gallery needs you. <laughs> yeah. And
2: good luck with your freedom of information request stuff. We've been following that, and we had meant to ask you about, you know, connecting Facts Still Matter to, you know, your ability as the press gallery to hold, hold these people accountable and... If there's a huge time lag, that doesn't help when we have four-year electoral cycles. But you're going to have to come back and talk about that because Allison's. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you said that perfectly. Thank you. Okay,
2: no problem. (laughs) Allison's turning my mic off. All right, thank you. (laughs) Listeners, you can follow Jennifer on Twitter if you don't already at jpags.
1: Next up, we're going to speak about glamour, feminine power, and the audacity of visible makeup. We mean more than just a subtle contour, guys. We're going to talk to culture writer Ray Knudsen about a piece she just wrote in Hazlitt. Here's T-shirt by the beaches. You're listening to Detangled
2: on CIUT 89.5 FM.
1: Welcome back. I'm Allison Smith. I'm still Vass Betner. That was T-shirt by the beaches. You are listening to Detangled on CIUT 895
2: FM. Ray Nutson writes criticism and reported stories all about culture, fashion, mental health, interior design, and a variety of other topics. She joins us by phone to discuss her Hazlitt article on Elizabeth Taylor's glamorous blue eyeshadow. Listeners take note the site is currently under maintenance, but the article will be back up soon.
1: Hey, Ray, good morning
5: hi good morning
1: thanks for coming on sure thanks for having me so in your essay you take a look at the history of blue eyeshadow sort of starting mm-hmm. with elizabeth taylor's portrayal of cleopatra at the at the peak of her career why I mm-hmm. uh, guess just to start was elizabeth taylor's blue eyeshadow look so iconic and so um a part of her image
5: Well, I think that she just epitomized glamour for so many people. She just really lived life as a movie star and really embraced that. And it just became part of her image. And so I think that included her look. You know, she had these gorgeous blue eyes. They were emphasized by this blue eyeshadow. She had this fancy clothes, this fancy lifestyle. And so it just became a part of that whole aura that she was projecting.
2: And what what prompted the essay? What got you thinking about blue eyeshadow? Was it... The anniversary of her death was it anything else related to makeup that you want to tell us a little bit of both
5: uh yeah both kind of um i i'm really interested in makeup and the history of makeup and the cultural conversations around makeup and so i've just been reading up on a lot of makeup history and just kind of learning as much as i can about you know the historical uses of makeup up through today and blue eyeshadow i thought was so interesting because it's this really bold look it's kind of a difficult look to master mm-hmm. and so I just became really interested in that product itself and she over the in particular is just such a good character I think to tell the story of that product because she used it not all the time but often enough and it became part of this iconic look with her and Cleopatra and so it just became such a cultural moment when she wore it people copied her and it just became this huge thing because she wore this one particular, you know, makeup item. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was just one way to tell that story.
1: She definitely wore a lot of it in the in the Cleopatra look. It's like up to her eyebrows almost, but it's still totally. so beautiful. Um, yeah. So aside from Elizabeth Taylor wearing blue eyeshadow, how maybe like since then has that look or, you know, I guess there's a variety of looks you can do with, with blue eyeshadow, but how has that how has women wearing blue eyeshadow been portrayed in uh, pop culture?
5: Yeah, I think that it's kind of because it is so loud and obvious. I think that it becomes kind of associated with loud and obvious women, which culture tends to struggle with. And so I think that a lot of times people wearing that look kind of get portrayed as like crazy or wild or an actual witch. In the case of a love witch, that movie where she wore the main character wore blue eyeshadow mm-hmm. a lot. Um, So, yeah, I think it just became associated with this kind of wild woman who wasn't afraid to be loud and obvious with her look, which is brave. I mean, that's kind of not a lot of women, I think, commonly wear that. It's definitely something you notice Mm -hmm. when you wear it. And so I think that, yeah, that kind of became associated with this loud woman, brazen woman um, who kind of lost control of their life or had a lot of power and didn't know what to do with it. and. Yeah, I just yeah. I'm kind of that obsessed
1: kind of with the phrase loud and obvious. Yeah. Can we put that on a yeah. shirt
2: <laughs> Brazen <laughs> and also, you know, not lazy because it does take effort right. to get blue eyeshadow right. So there's that, that element of, um, yeah. you know, concerted em- embellishment. And I loved how, you know, in taking that historical look in your article, you noted that tension between kind of more visible or obvious makeup like bold lips, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of eyeshadow that we're talking about. Versus, you know, wearing makeup so long as it wasn't obvious. Um, We wanted to ask you how you thought that might still be playing out today. We were sort of thinking, you know, with this emphasis on, you know, dewy skin and natural looks, Mm -hmm. there's still very much a dichotomy between, you know, wearing makeup that's not, you know, really makeup or just like getting you to some kind of base versus Mm -hmm. a more fulsome, you know, eye-catching look, look. yeah just yeah, oh, drama like where <laughs> yeah. basically where's the drama tell us everything
5: yeah no i think that you're so right and i think there's definitely like there's an emphasis on skincare right now and right. natural dewy skin like you were saying and so i think there's very much a split in like oh i have beautiful shiny skin and a bare face or a face that looks bare, and then this opposite look that's almost exaggerated really bold makeup I know the blue eyeshadow is often used in drag and it just so I think that there's definitely a split between full face of obvious makeup very loud this is on purpose Mm -hmm. or my skin is fresh and dewy and I'm just naturally beautiful like this and so yeah I think it definitely still has that split and there's still those implications um I think that's why I think blue eyeshadow is so interesting because it's kind of a difficult makeup product to master. So like you said oh, yeah. you kind of have to be confident. You have to know kind of what you're doing to make it look good and that uh, makeup is traditional. I mean, in our culture it has been
2: or embrace feminine. looking bad. Under,
5: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just or be like I'm wearing it. It's already on. Yeah. Did my best. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like definitely associated with women and and women tend to get punished if they're too loud and mm-hmm. too obvious and mm-hmm. too in control of things. And so, yeah, I think blue eyeshadow is like advertising that because it's so obvious when you're wearing it, you can't hide that you're wearing blue eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's really indicative, I think, of that split. And I think it's been interesting, actually, Glossier, that makeup brand that um, is kind of into doing natural looks, actually just came out with an eye... Shadow, like a liquid eyeshadow and blue is one of their colors that they came out with but it's very um, you could build it it can be faded it's, and so I thought that was really interesting because I never would have pictured them to come with like colored eyeshadows and that's the recent product they came out with so it's kind of blending a little bit um in their makeup line, at least
1: mm-hmm. you can be dewy and blue. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that mm-hmm. you mentioned the Love Witch in your in your article because yeah, her makeup is super iconic. That's a 2016 kind of horror movie, I guess. Uh, yeah. camp- very like campy horror movie that was written, produced, and starred in by the the same woman. I don't know her name off the top of my head. Um, just speaking actually, of actually,
5: like- the actress who starred in it is uh, Anna Billers, The director who made it, and then um, the actress who starred in it is a different woman, her
1: oh. name is Robinson. Okay, I didn't know that. Anyways, great movie, great eyeshadow. <laughs> and my friends yeah. and I have actually tried, we have tried to recreate that eyeshadow look before. It was hard, to Vass's point about yeah. it being not easy to put on. That is true. It mm-hmm. didn't look great, but I'm willing nah. to try again. <laughs> I'm wondering, I was thinking about kind of like one contradiction to your um, idea of sort of the, the fierce or... Um, Obvious, maybe woman wearing blue eyeshadow. I was thinking of like, kind of the the Golden Girls, or I don't know if they wear blue eyeshadow, mm-hmm. but like kind of like the old Florida lady blue eyeshadow mm-hmm. um, trope. I suppose. What? How do you think that fits into this narrative?
5: I think it's kind of. Um Similar and that I feel like sometimes it gets associated with that, like Florida kind of trashy, like look because it's like, oh, I'm wearing this blue eyeshadow and I'm loud and obnoxious and I don't care. And so I feel like it kind of gets associated, it's kind of similar vein of glamour and that you're just wearing this obvious thing and like you're an older woman and this is your life and so that's it, you know, and you don't care and you're going to wear it if you want to. So I feel like it's kind of similar in that way.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, actually. Florida, that, that's a loud and obvious woman in their own right, of mm-hmm. course. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, another taboo you pick up on in the essay
2: is putting around putting makeup on in public. So the, mm-hmm. you know, the audacity of kind of displaying the work that goes into putting, you know, your public persona together. Yeah. Um, for me, that's a chapstick if I can find it in my bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like... You know, an extra hair elastic. But why do you think women are are still being kind of forced to hide this work, and that we're kind of still shocked and delighted to to bear witness to you know yes. that art and that kind of very private enterprise that is ultimately for public consumption?
5: Yeah, and I think that's a great way to put it. Is like people are excited to bear witness to that because um, I think so much. Uh, well, throughout history, I guess, I ran into a lot of periods in history, especially in Europe and in the U.S., where um, wearing obvious makeup was kind of frowned upon. So if you came out looking beautiful, that was fine, and they just didn't know how you get there, so they kind of ignored that you were wearing makeup. So it kind of became, it's like hiding that is part of, it's, it's so entwined with wearing makeup, I guess, mm-hmm. and so it's so hard to... Be out in public and put it on and say, like, I didn't just wake up like this. This is work, this is effort, and this is me doing that work and effort. It's kind of vulnerable to share that. And I think sharing the secrets of how you became beautiful is something that people really struggle with because they just want to be believed as beautiful without trying, you know? And you just Mm -hmm. want to appear that you look like that anyway and you didn't really try that hard and like oh I just put on this old thing you know and so I think that there's such a entwined culture around secrecy and kind of hiding the effort behind it and so yeah when people do that in public and people still like they talk about like oh this girl was putting makeup in her car or putting it on in the train and it's just still kind of frowned upon and, and looked down upon because you're doing this thing out in public and it should be in a bathroom or you should be doing it in private or before you left the house but
1: well we've talked a bit know. about yeah. how um we I and mean, we this came up a few minutes ago but skincare is like you know mm-hmm. the trend thing right now and there's so much advertising of skincare everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can definitely say as a 30 something year old woman, I'm I'm exposed mm-hmm. to this marketing mm-hmm. um, especially on like Instagram and stuff like that. But what you're always seeing are like the beautiful sterile bottle or like a couple drops yep. of this oil. Like they're even in that like something that's just so widespread. You're rarely seeing anyone actually put it on their face. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, that's true. That's a really good point. Yeah. And that
5: and I think people are kind of Opening up more, there's a trend to talk about the work that goes behind that, and here's the ten products that I use, you know, to look like this. So I think that that is positive to be kind of more open about the work and the products and the money that it takes to, you know, have beautiful skin. Um, so there's kind of a moving toward being more public about it but yeah it's not you're not like in the office you know slathering on and oils you know that's still kind of frowned mm-hmm, upon mm-hmm. as like
2: inappropriate you know? well you're not no i'm just kidding um <laughs> what would you call it so i mean there's there's self-care sunday we've talked about that in terms of how people are starting to give give others a peek into some of their skincare.
1: so we need a blue eyeshadow um,
2: one yeah what would you call it for you know visible makeup monday like tell me tell me about Blue what we can do Day, to Tuesday, <laughs> embrace it a little yeah. bit more and kind of kind of egg each other on as we consider painting our faces a little bit more
5: yeah no i like makeup monday i think that sounds good and <laughs> okay. so, like i spent 30 minutes on this book it took 500 steps and i'm yeah. beautiful you know <laughs> and it's just steps. like i think that that's a really
1: good idea That's awesome. Well, Ray, we will keep looking for your makeup writing. Um, It's something we're definitely really interested in and I think is something that doesn't get talked about enough. So very into it. Thanks for doing this piece and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah,
5: thanks for having me.
1: Uh, listeners, you can follow Ray on Twitter at r hudson, and you can find her piece no, in RCL Nutson. RCL Nutson. Yeah. My computer screen is too small. My font is too small. They... <laughs> and her piece is on the website Hazlitt, uh, which is under construction, but should be back. I'm um, hopefully yeah. and today. I, I suggest loading the article and
2: just getting your old bottle of Wet and Wild. I know you still have it, <laughs> and get you some bright nails on and scroll through and enjoy. It's really a fun read. Thanks, Ray. Thank you so much. All right. It's time to quickly talk about what we're reading, I think.
1: Uh, sure. What are you reading?
2: <laughs> I just read Goodbye, Vitamin. I just read that. Yeah. It was two ninety nine on my Kindle. Maybe I could have passed you my Kindle. It was a fun read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was disappointed by the Text Me When You Get Home book about female friendship. I oh, thought it got a lot it? of hype. Um, very kind of surface-level look at you know, female friendships, the kind of core thesis is, you know, friends are really important. You don't need to trade off your friends if you do, you know, get married or have a child. And, you know, female friendships can be a secret of, of women's success. And But I, I just thought there could but be you so much you more. But you had no idea that that was true before that. I so didn't know. Share, I was like, yeah. what? No, but <laughs> I just thought there could have been more around, like, the tribalism, around, like, the girl squad or, like, the girl gang or, you know... There is, there's lots to explore around, like, teams of women and, like, rivalries as well. Instead, this book tries to be like, well, women think, you know, the trope is that women don't always get along, but the the truth is, you know, my friend is my emergency contact and, like, my friend's in my will. It's like, yeah, that's fine, but there's also... I don't know. It
1: just, it wasn't as, so it didn't that want it. A little bit loud and obvious, maybe? <laughs> You're loud and obvious. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I am reading The Power by Naomi I- oh Alderman. Yeah. <laughs> Vass hates this book. I'm only 50 pages in. I will come back with an update and see if I ever, ever get through this novel. It's okay. a dystopian novel about women who have electric shock power and they take over the world.
2: Yeah, I, I surprisingly I couldn't get into it. Um on that note, thank you so much for listening to Detangled. We're live here at the University of Toronto
1: every week, including Easter Monday. Democracy Now with Amy Goodman is up next. We will leave you with uh No Surprises by Roman Gian Arthur and Janelle Monet. Bye. <laughs>